Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. I have a, well, I don't want to call it a pet peeve because a pet peeve sounds like I want to invite it in the house and like stroke its fur or something. Anyway, I, I, have, I, have, a, I have an annoyance, a peeve, a tick uh, with, with, with people who will say, I'm starving. No you're, no, you're not. No, you're not. Now, there are millions of people, millions upon millions of people in the world for whom that is true. Most of the people I have heard it from in my life are teenagers who just haven't eaten in the last 30 minutes. You're not starving. You are hungry, for sure. Uh, you are not starving. And I think that to say we are cheapens the experience of what others are going through in our community and around the world. I have been fortunate enough to never truly know what it is to be that kind of hungry. I mean, not, not really. Anytime I haven't had two consecutive meals, it was by choice. I've never been in a position where uh, I don't know when the last time I ate was. I've never even been in a position where I don't know if my next meal is coming. And some of you have. And that's a significant shaping experience. To be that kind of hungry, to not know when the next meal is coming. I, I, I've always not only known there was a meal coming, but usually could tell you what time it was coming at. As Jesus walked this earth, he knew the desires and temptations that we faced, and he, he made sure of it. Jesus made sure uh, that he knew what it was like to be truly hungry, really, truly hungry. We read in, in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew's account of Jesus' life. He writes, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We'll get back to that. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I should say so. 40 days, 40 nights. He was starving. The truth is that Jesus knew hunger. Jesus really, truly knew what it was to be hungry because 40 days and 40 nights without food will do that to you. Jesus knew our hunger. And then we read that he gathered a group of people who also knew hunger. Hunger for food, hunger for respect, hunger for healing, hunger for hope. And he told them, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I don't know if you realize that you do this, but we tend to fill in what we think the end of the sentence is going to be. When we hear somebody talking, we'll fill it in. So if you are really hungry, which if I keep talking about this, some of you are going to be really ready for lunch in a minute. If, if we're really hungry and we hear somebody say, blessed are those who hunger, okay, great, because I'm hungry. That's awesome. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I don't know this was the answer this crowd was expecting. Uh, 
In the New Living Translation, it says, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. As we've been going through this series on the Beatitudes, these blessings of Jesus, these congratulatory remarks that seem so backwards and unexpected, Uh, We've been working on memorizing scripture together, and we'll keep doing that as we head toward Easter. We've done that a couple different ways in the last three weeks. Uh, Here's what I would uh, like to do, and you may have your own best practice of memorizing things, and if you do, awesome, do do that. Uh, One of the things that I think can be really helpful is some sort of trigger to bring something to mind. Uh, You may remember we had a young lady named Macy here in the fall uh, who we were uh, hearing from and blessing before she headed out to do uh, work overseas. And she was trying to figure out ways to uh, get people to remember that she's over there and to pray for her. And so her trigger was, anytime you see dirty feet, would you think of me and pray for me? This is a great trigger. A little bit gross, but a great trigger remember to pray for Macy. This week, I, I want to challenge you that anytime you are hungry or thirsty, before you take care of that, you say this verse, just as a trigger to remember and to memorize. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Uh, righteousness uh, is uh, a very a churchy word. I mean, Either that or depending on your generation, righteous makes you think of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures or the turtle guy from Finding Nemo telling you to find your exit buddy. But righteousness is a very, very churchy word, okay? So I just want to define it for us because there are a number of churchy words that if you've been around church long enough, you go, yeah, I know what that means. Great, define it. Got nothing. So let's just define it together so we're all defining this the same way. That just that happens to me with words all the time. I know how to use it in a sentence. I just don't know what to tell you how it means. Righteousness is the quality of being morally right or justifiable or being free from sin and guilt. Okay? So righteousness is being morally right or justifiable or being free from sin or guilt. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Again, New Living Translation, a little different. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. And when I read those two, they seem very, very different to me, righteousness and justice. Because for me, one of those, righteousness, is a very personal thing. That is, that is about me and my moral uprightness. And then justice is a social thing. Justice is community. That's, that's uh, moral in, in the communal sense. That's everything being fair and made right in the world around us. But that is a very modern schism between these two words. In the ancient world, and certainly the people Jesus was talking to, they would have understood that these two things go hand in hand, that that righteousness and justice go together because doing rightly would impact the community around you, should impact the community. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger for their lives, their community, their loved ones to be made right. Blessed are those who hunger for things in them and around them to be made right. Now, 
Hunger is a metaphor that we still use today. Uh, sports fans will hear commentators talk about how so-and-so is hungry for a championship, right? We, hunger is a metaphor we just use for desire of, of any type. Uh, we hunger for food, for justice, for touch, for victory. And any desire is a signal to lead us somewhere, okay? Hunger, any desire, will drive us to something. And we can just follow where our desires lead us. Just in general, any, any desire you have, you can just follow wherever that desire leads you. That's what it is. It's a calling from inside you to go head toward something. And sometimes that can be very, very good. If you are hungry and you have the ability to, you should eat. It's actually a good thing. And when people get hungry and don't eat, we, we acknowledge that as a problem. It should lead us to good things. However, following our desires can also often lead us to all kinds of bad or wrong things. So I want to talk for just a minute about the way that hunger can lead us astray. Hunger can lead to cheap substitutes. And we know this with, with food, right? Most of us do, I think. That if, if we are hungry and we don't intentionally take care of it with something that is healthy for us, uh, we will often grab whatever is easiest, most available, or sounds best at the time, which is typically not celery, right? We're grabbing chips, we're grabbing cookies. Uh, I will occasionally decide, no, no, because, you know, I like an afternoon snack. That ties me over till dinner. We'll talk about hangriness in a minute. So I like a good afternoon snack. Uh, I uh, will sometimes go, eh, it's just a couple hours till dinner. I'll skip that. That'll be the healthy choice. Um, and then I'm around my house and I'm walking through the kitchen and I'm like, oh, well, I'll just have a cookie to tide me over. And then, then suddenly I'm making laps to the kitchen, just finding really good reasons to go through the kitchen over and over again. And we'll just grab whatever cheap substitutes there are. And when we grab these kind of cheap substitutes for our hunger, for what we really need, we may be satisfying our taste buds, but we are not satisfying our hunger. Certainly not for very long. It returns very quickly. We're not satisfied long. When Jesus was hungry, having fasted for 40 days, remember it said that he was led out to the desert to be tempted. And as we'll read in a moment, Satan then tempts him with cheap substitutes for righteousness, for justice, for victory. And these are temptations that Jesus has to confront. So we'll start again in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, 
if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Jesus turned down the temptation to shortcut, to settle. He wanted the fullness of what he has come to do. He he knew the fullness of his mission and he was not willing to settle for some cheap substitute. Jesus promises us that we will be filled, that we will be satisfied and we settle for a tempting lesser. Well, if I can't be righteous, I will just be self-righteous. If I can't figure out how my actions would be justified, well, I will just make sure I can justify them. Well, if I, if I can't be righteous in the way that I want to, at least I can look around and go, well, I am better than that guy over there. We'll find cheap substitutes for righteousness. If I can't actually get justice, if the world just seems unfair and nobody is fixing it, well, then, then I'll just settle for revenge. I'll just settle for payback. I'll just make sure that somebody else hurts in the way that I have been hurt. We'll settle for a shortcut, for a cheap substitute. Last week, we talked about Jesus' promise in this list of Beatitudes that the meek will inherit the earth, the earth. And we told the story of how he rides into Jerusalem, this powerful city, this meek king on a donkey, and the people don't get it. And they miss out in some way on this desire to inherit the earth because all they can see is they want to inherit Rome. They, they just want a capital city. They just want some political power. They've been told they can inherit the earth, but they're going to settle for whatever is right in front of them. They're gonna settle for whatever is most playing with their emotions at the moment. It's a cheap substitute for what God really has promised them. Hunger can lead us to cheap substitutes. Uh, Hunger can also lead us to be hangry. Now, if this is a term that is unfamiliar to you, you may be more familiar with the concept than the word. I am unfortunately very familiar with both. So hangry is hungry and angry smashed together very convenient little word for what happens when we're hungry and we get extra irritable and extra self-focused. And and there was a a time in in, uh, my recovery from addiction journey uh, early on where I felt like I just could not be hungry. I couldn't allow myself to be hungry because I knew that I would get extra irritable, extra self-focused, and I was already way too good at both of those things. Uh, And like everybody else, I make worse decisions when I am hungry. So I would go around just making sure I was never hungry, which is an incredible privilege in this world to be able to do anyway, but also not particularly healthy or good, but I was aware that I have this propensity when hungry, that I'm more irritable, I'm less patient, uh, my, my words get a little sharper and snappier, and I get a little more self-focused on what involves me. We get hangry. In pursuing justice, we could end up shortcutting our own 
righteousness. Because we're so irritated and angry with the world around us and the things that we see around us that are wrong that we go, look, that just has to be fixed. And if that means that this part of my character just has to dissolve so that we can get this thing fixed, if this means that I have to give my allegiance to leaders whose character has been laid aside so that they can fix this issue, then I guess I will do that because that's what needs to happen. Because this justice thing needs to occur, and so I will lay down my own righteousness, or at least some piece of it. I will shortcut it so that I can take care of this justice thing that is irritating me, that is bothering me, that is making my life more frustrating. In the musical Matilda, you did not see us going there this morning, did you? In the musical Matilda... Matilda sings a little song. Uh, one of the lines is, if it's not right, you have to put it right. That is an excellent hunger for justice. You go, girl. If it's not right, you have to put it right. The chorus continues. Nobody else is going to change my story. So sometimes you have to be a little bit naughty. It's a very, very catchy little tune. The scene is hilarious, and it is equally terrible life advice. (laughs) The horrible life philosophy. It's adorable coming in musical form from a little nine-year-old British girl that when she says naughty, you're like, sure. I mean, that's, yes. I guess you're just cute enough to get away with stuff. But it's terrible, terrible life philosophy. That to say, well, sometimes you, nobody else is going to do it for you, so you better do it. And if that means that you have to drop your righteousness, drop your character in order to get it done, then that's just how it'll have to be. On the flip side, in pursuing righteousness and saying, no, no, it's, this is just going to be about me and Jesus. This is just going to be about me and my relationship with God. I need him to make me right. I need him to forgive me my sins. And if the world around me is burning, I can't control any of that, which is true. We can't. And so since I can't control it, all I can control is me and how I'm doing with Jesus. And so I'm just going to stick to what I can control. And I'm just going to stick to what seems to matter to me the most, me and and Jesus. And if the world around me burns, then it burns. And all of a sudden our self-focus shortcuts our ability and and undercuts our ability to pursue justice for all. Doing rightly should impact our communities. For about a hundred years or so now, so many of the fractures in the American church can actually be traced to this difference, to people saying either, no, no, what it means to follow Jesus is that we pursue justice for everybody and and that we we do social justice and we're going to take care of the society around us and we're going to make sure that that we address all the problems and oppressions that everybody else is is facing. Uh, It is really just about how can we improve the world around us for the people around us and love them in the name of Jesus. And the other side says, look, This is a temporary home. And what really matters is what really matters is your relationship with God, that your sins are forgiven and your eternity is secured. And that's what we need to be talking to people about. Forget this life. We need to be talking about sin and forgiveness and eternity. And the church has fractured over and over in dozens of ways over the last century or so off of this debate. Is it about social justice and justice for the world around us 
for meeting the needs of other people or is it about my relationship with Jesus and sins being forgiven and telling everybody else their sins need to be forgiven too? And the sad part is the answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, it is both. That yes, we need to be in right relationship with God and yes, that should impact the community around us. That Jesus said the most important things are to love God and love your neighbor, that there is no split here. We are called to do both. Now look, there is so much in me that needs to be made right. That with all the things going on in the world, I could spend my whole life just dealing with the things in me that are wrong and need to be made right. And that could occupy most or all of my time. And I can, in my vulnerability about that, in my frustration with that, I can easily settle for the cheap substitutes of self-righteousness, for the cheap substitutes of justifying my actions uh, and, and, and taking cheap substitutes for what God is actually offering me. I think there's a reason that Jesus, just a couple chapters later in Matthew 7, tells Uh, This same crowd in Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? I'm absolutely 100% convinced Jesus is being funny here. Like this is supposed, if you think there's not humor in the Bible, like he's talking about planks and speck, it's supposed to be funny. Okay, anyway, verse 5. You hypocrite. I suppose that part's not funny. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We can get so focused on the wrongs in others that we shortcut to self-righteousness so that we can take care of the wrong around us and still feel okay about it. So we don't have to actually face down and own our own hypocrisy. We'll just say, well, sure, but at least I'm better than these people that I'm yelling at. I will take the shortcut. And it's a cheap substitute for what Jesus actually offers us for all that's wrong with us. It's a cheap substitute for the grace of God. And it is built on anger and self-focus. On anger at how the world around us is breaking and how it impacts us rather than paying attention to how our ability to do good impacts the world around us. Because yes, there is so much in our world that is clearly wrong. So much wrong that needs to be dealt with. So much that needs to be made right. And it can stir this anger within us at the injustices in the world around us. And that anger can drive us to good things. Uh, If you're a sports fan, you have likely heard story after story of athletes being driven by their anger. They call it having a chip on their shoulder, but they will find ways to be bitter and angry because some coach when they were nine cut them from the football team and so they're gonna prove they're the best golfer in the world or whatever it is that they come up with 
to, to drive themselves, to work out, to push harder, to work on their skills, to be the greatest. And then uh, they retire and they don't actually know how to get along with people because they've been driven by anger for decades. So yes, it can drive us to do productive, good things. But I think there is also a reason why next week, uh, we're going to talk about the next beatitude on this uh, list, and it's about the blessing, blessing of showing mercy to the people around us, to those with specks in their eyes. When I look at the wrong in me and in the world, I long to be satisfied. I don't really know a better word for it than that. I want to be okay with me. I want to be okay with the world around me. I, I want to be satisfied in some way that all is right in the world, that we're going to be okay because we will make it all right. I want to be satisfied that there is enough right in me that will sort of outweigh the bad and it'll somehow be okay. But being satisfied feels really, really impossible as I look at the world around me, as I look in the mirror. Because I sin and people sin. We make mistakes that hurt ourselves and hurt others. Okay, Jesus. So you have promised that we will be filled. We will be satisfied. But how? Like it, I don't understand. I look at brokenness and I don't understand how you are going to make this all right. How are we going to be satisfied? How are we going to be filled? And it's interesting to me that I feel the need to ask the question, how? And I was thinking about this in the context of other relationships. That, that if I ask Wendy, hey, will you clean up this corner of the house that has your crafting stuff in it or whatever? And she says, sure, I'll get to that. And I go, okay, but can you tell me how? Like, can you, can you walk me through, like, when is this gonna happen and what steps are you gonna take? Like, how exactly are you going to get this done? The only reason for me to need to know how is if I don't trust that she will actually do it. So if I need to know, Jesus, how? I'm not trusting that he will actually do it. And I, I want some, some steps. I want to know when. I want to know what this is. I, I, I want the recipe I, I want the temperature on the oven. I want to know what time we are eating that we will be satisfied and filled. Because I'm not sure that I trust him that it's actually going to happen. And yet Jesus does not give any details in this promise as to how. Perhaps that's because the answer is different in every situation, that how your hunger will get met and mine may be different. Perhaps it's because if he told them, hey, most of this is going to get covered through my death and I'm going to rise from the dead, that, that they would have struggled to believe that. 
Perhaps it's because Jesus isn't actually offering a prescription on how, like take two of these and you'll feel satisfied and righteous in the morning. He's not issuing a prescription. He's issuing an invitation to relationship. He's actually inviting them to come and walk with him. And I think hunger leads us astray when we try to answer the how without Jesus. We try to answer the how without Jesus. And our society right now, is, our American society, is actually a giant living case study in an attempt to do this. We really like the kingdom philosophies of Jesus as a culture. Our culture is built on the teachings of Jesus to some extent or another. And we would really like all the benefits of the kingdom Jesus presents without the king. We're trying to answer the how without Jesus. But Jesus is inviting his audience and he is inviting us into this relationship with him, inviting us to walk with him through all the brokenness in our world and all the brokenness in our own hearts and souls. Jesus is inviting his audience and inviting us into a new kind of kingdom where righteous isn't determined by how impressive you can be, but is determined by recognizing our dependence on him. The need to lay down our power, the need to be merciful. Into a kingdom where justice isn't an end unto itself, but is part of seeing the world made right. And right now, our world in general, certainly our American world in general, because we're trying to do the kingdom without the king, is trying to find and teach that justice in and of itself will satisfy. That we will get to a point where we will do better next time, enough times, that we will be good enough, we will be just enough, we will all be righteous enough that the world will be okay, the world will be just, that we're gonna get everybody to agree on what just means, which is impossible in and of itself, and then we will just get everybody to act in that just way, and then, then we can all sit back and be satisfied and filled with how just we have made the world to be. impossible enough to get people to even agree on what that looks like, let alone to get a world of sinful people to create that kind of justice. There is always injustice. There is always a lack of righteousness. And we called this series that we're going through as we move toward Easter, the world turned upside down. And that is in part because for centuries now, in the English-speaking world, people have referred to this kingdom that Jesus invites us to. The, the, the Beatitudes list, the general sermon on the Mount of Matthew 5 through 7, as Jesus inviting us into an upside-down kingdom. That Jesus takes everything that we know and understand and flips it upside down. 
Author Dallas Willard says it would be more accurate to say that Jesus is inviting us to a right-side-up kingdom, that it was made right in the first place, and that it is sin in our brokenness that has turned it upside down, and Jesus comes along and invites us to see it made right again, to be made right-side-up. Jesus invites us into a kingdom where the world is flipped right again, where those with nothing know that they belong, where the mourners are comforted, where those who refuse to overpower are given leadership. A kingdom where justice and righteousness are glimpsed and tasted, and where ultimately, because of a righteous and just king, we are filled and satisfied. The world can only be made right by the one who made it right in the beginning. The world can only be made right by the one who made it right in the first place. The only one who has ever made it right is the only one who can make it right again. There has been an uh, oft-referenced Martin Luther King quote that I think I've heard uh, a lot more in the last 15 years uh, or, or so. Uh, But he's quoted as saying, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And we can picture that, and those who hunger for justice can can take delight in it. it, The arc of the moral universe is long. This is going to take a long time, but it bends toward justice. I want to assume for just a moment this morning, that that statement is true. And you don't have to agree that it is true, but we can take any statement, no matter how crazy we think it is, and we can say, well, let's assume for a second that it's true, because that allows us to play out what the impact of that truth would be, okay? So let's assume this one is true. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That's going to mean there are two options for us to see this come true. One to see this bend toward justice actually happen in our future. One is that humanity, with all of our history of brokenness and injustice, will continue to get better, will continue to become more righteous, will progress to be better than the previous generation and the next generation, the next generation will all be better than the one before it. And that we will gain a collective righteousness that will allow us to bend the world toward this sort of justice and righteousness. That's, that's option one. The only other option that we have that can be broken down a whole bunch of ways, but the only other option that we have is that there is some sort of moral force beyond humanity that will bend the universe that way. These are our choices. That humanity will continue to progress and get better, and each generation will be better than the one before it, and we're certainly way better than people thousands of years ago. Or there is a moral force beyond humanity that is bending the universe toward justice. Martin Luther King chose the latter, believing that this quote only makes sense in the context and the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. In a second, I want to read uh, the full quote for you, or or at least uh, the full paragraph it's found in. It's actually from a periodical in 1958 called The Gospel Messenger. And so we're already uh, understanding, those reading it, that we're talking about Christ and Christian thought, okay? 
And you'll note when I show this to you that that particular quote actually already has quotation marks around it. It's King recognizing that this was handed down to him. I don't know if he knows the original uh, author of this statement. Near as we can tell today, uh, it's actually originally from a mid-1800s abolitionist minister named Theodore Parker. Okay, so here's, uh, here's the full quote. Evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross. But that same Christ arose and split history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. There is something in the universe which justifies William Colant Bryant in saying, truth crushed to earth will rise again. That something is the life and death and life again of Jesus Christ. That something is the death on a cross and resurrection from the dead of this same Jesus. And our hunger should lead us to the kingdom of God and to its good king. It is only under the bending and shaping of a just and right God that the world will bend toward justice and righteousness. And make no mistake, it will be bent. This is actually part of the good news of Jesus. That in the end, we will hear these words. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. That the one who was crushed to earth and raised from the dead and then ascended to the heavens and is sitting on the throne will say, look, I am making everything new. I am bending the world toward justice. And the truth is, everything can include you. You can be made right and new as well. Now you can only be made right by the one who made you. In the same way that the world can only be made right by the one who made it right in the beginning, you and I can only be made right by the one who made us. And you are invited into relationship with a holy and good and right and just maker. He wants to fill you as a new creation. He wants to form you into righteousness. So be forewarned that that will mean bending you toward justice. And that will not always feel great. It will mean pruning away the parts of your character that bend away from justice. It'll mean tearing away the cheap substitutes that you choose to fill your life with because it is easier to feel in control than to trust that Jesus is doing it. Tearing away the things that we cling to that are only temporary satisfactions. But the confidence that we can have in God's faithfulness to this work is the good news. This is written in Philippians. And I am certain I'm confident that God who began the good work within you will continue his work 
until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. The one who is crushed and raised from the dead, who ascended into heaven, is coming back and in the end will make all things new. Will bend the world towards justice and righteousness. Will do a good work in us to bend and form and shape us until we are filled and satisfied with righteousness and justice. Uh, If you are someone who wants to give yourself over, as Matt was talking about earlier, to this good work that God wants to do in us, who wants to recognize the need to be forgiven and to allow God to forgive you, to mold you, to love you actively in that way. If you want to give your life, your heart to Jesus, uh, I will be right up here uh, while, we, uh, while we sing this last song. I'll be up here for a little while uh, after uh, we're done this morning. And, and I would love to pray with you about that uh, and uh, take some next steps uh, with you. Uh, this time, though, I want to invite the worship team to come up. Uh, let's sing together. Let me, let me pray for the good work uh, being done in us. Father God, thank you that you are uh, faithful to us. Thank you that nothing we have ever done has reached beyond your ability to forgive. The nothing that we are ashamed of, no cheap substitute that we keep running back to, no shortcut that we have taken stops you from loving us from inviting us to be in relationship with you, from wanting to walk with us through all of the brokenness. Father, thank you for your grace for us. Thank you for making a way through Jesus that we would be forgiven, that we can be bent, that we can be invited into relationship with you. Father, would you stir a hunger in us? If we're not hungering, to be made right and to have our relationship with you made right, would you, would you stir in us? If, if we're not hungering to see justice in the world around us, to see justice in our own lives, would, would you stir that hunger in us? And would you make that call, that invitation to relationship with you so clear so that we, we remember that um, it's not our own righteousness, it's not our own justice that satisfies, but it's relationship with you. It's being welcomed into your love, walking with you. Would you draw us to yourself? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.